We just restart that a little bit. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to episode number three of Get High Podcast. My name is Tom. I'm here with Mark. It's a pleasure to talk to you, mate. How you been? Yeah, I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, I just, I, I want to be where you are. Like I'm in Ballarat. <laughs> I just feel like wherever you are, just teleport me there. And it's just a green screen, mate. I'm actually in my closet in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, literally. I don't know what it is, but it looks so good. No, it's good. I'm, I'm visiting family, but that ain't gonna stop us from talking about some important aviation topics. Um, yeah. So today we're gonna split it into two sections. I'm gonna take the first part. I'm gonna take a bit of an emphasis on health, um, breaking it down into sleep, diet, and exercise. Like I'm not an expert in any of these things whatsoever, but I've made a ton of mistakes over the last, I guess, decade. Um, and I've learned a few things here and there. Those are the things I'm going to be sharing. And then in part two, I'm going to hand it over to you and you're going to be talking about. I'm going to talk about some of the vet fee and loan structures that are available for student pilots. And then just maybe the pros and cons of vet fee, maybe doing it yourself as well. And um, just the availability of flight training out there and the different structures that students are using to obtain their private pilot's license, commercial pilot's license, and um, as well as the cadetships, that's a big thing now. So that'll be yeah. really a really good point to um, hit the nail on, I think, with the upcoming... Like, For sure. And I, think, um, and I think, you know, financing and fee structures have changed dramatically in the last five or 10 years. So yeah. I'm interested myself to actually know how people are financing these things now because not long ago, you know, if you wanted to finance it, really through like some sort of government, um, uh, you know, like hex, you had to go through university. And if you didn't do yeah. that pathway, you had to come to the table with cash. And yeah. many people had families mortgaging their, their properties, like their homes to get their yeah. kids through, through flying school. And I guess there's, there's other avenues available to people now. Yeah, um, definitely. So sick. Um, so let's, let's first talk about, uh, sleep and, you know, I think, um, of the three things, sleep, uh, diet, and exercise, sleep is probably one of the things that you can get by with not doing a great job at it for a very long time before it catches up on you. Diet is so obvious because you see the food that you put in your mouth, you know, crew meals, um, restaurants, fast food on layovers. Um, and then with exercise, you know, you know if you've been lazy or not. But with sleep, you know, sometimes you just can't help yourself. Sometimes you're on a a 24-hour layover, which is incredibly challenging, which we'll talk about um, structuring your layover and how to try and build a, an image in your mind about when you're going to sleep, when you're going to allocate time to go do things. Um, so sleep, I think, can be extremely challenging. Um, a really fantastic book that I think everyone should drop a bit of coin on, read, or listen to the audio is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, there's also a really great podcast episode with Joe Rogan, episode 1109, um, many, many years ago now. Um, what he speaks about in that podcast and in his book is specifically a lot of the challenge that shift workers have when it comes to maintaining a healthy lifestyle in regards to sleep. Um, and a lot of it, you know, it's it, in a lot of ways, it's quite depressing because we have no choice about whether or not we do night shifts. It's just a part of the job, right? And that doesn't matter if you're an international pilot or you're domestic, it's going to happen. So all you can do is your best. And I think, um, you know, for instance, do you have any strategies that you have for layovers and how you structure it or how you force yourself to sleep? Yeah, for sure. So, I, you know, when we were doing international or when I used to do international, which I haven't done for two years and I love the fact that I haven't done a night shift, but um, definitely depending on the layover, if it was a long layover, I'd, I'd go on to the local time wherever I was going. Um, How long just was to long? Go, uh, For me, it was at least two days. So 48 hours in Spain, Barcelona or Toronto, wherever. Um, and I would try and work the rest on the aircraft so that rest schedule that we have to benefit me staying or getting onto the local time right. um was like a london flight which uh we've both done many times. 
Yep, staying so at the like airport. A Ten or eleven hour flight. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm, London's great. So if I was seeing people, yep, I'd make an effort to go out, try and get on local time. But I'd always just generally stay on that Hong Kong Perth time. Um, and I personally think that's the best if you're trying to like reserve and keep your sleep credits. Um, when we're talking about like sleep in general, uh, we have sleep. We, we, we have to rest on the aircraft, right? It's like legal. Yep. So generally that was a four crew flight and we do, um, depending on the flight time, uh, split the rest in half or movie, movie, rest, rest. Right. But, um, like you're talking about movie, sleep. Movie, rest, rest is for people who don't know what it is. Yeah. So movie, movie, rest, rest is pretty much, especially on the long sector flights, like 15 hours, um, we'd go watch a movie and then the other pilot we're rotating with, he would go watch a movie. So we kind of like say two, two hours. hours each. Yep. And then we split the rest of it in half. So that might be like a four hour rest period for one pilot and the other might get it hopefully four hours as well. And that's when you're meant to be sleeping um, and yeah. getting that rest that you need. I have had a flight where the captain was literally just like, yeah, sorry, mate. Like, I'm going to have to burn you out on this. And just did like yeah, yeah, seven yeah, yeah, hours yeah, yeah. straight over the Pacific. And yeah, I've done that. Oh, man, I just, you know, that's cool. Like, and yeah. I guess, uh, and, and I guess the reason why we split it into like two, two, four, four chunks rather than just say six and six is because you develop a lot of, um, I guess like alertness and uh, like, you know, most of the time people are drinking coffee before a flight. Um, you might even have some adrenaline. So, you know, after takeoff, uh, telling two of the four crew to just magically go to sleep for six hours is a pretty tall order. And it's a little bit unfair on them because the likelihood is they're going to be staring at the ceiling awake for two hours before they even nod off. Whereas the second crew the ones who come to the crew rest after six hours, they're dead. They're going to go straight to the bunk and have an amazing six hours sleep. So there's a very unequal um, distribution of like good quality sleep. So yeah, uh, yeah I guess uh, that's where the value in movie movie stress comes from. And um, that is talking about quickly that opportunity to go to rest or having to be the first pilot to rest. That's when you're like as well planning beforehand. So if you're the first pilot before rest, I would generally have a nap in the afternoon because I know I'm not going to get good rest in that first four, six hours uh, rest period. Whereas yep. if I was the senior pilot and I was going out to London and going to get coffee with mates over there, then I would work uh, first. So on the second one, I pass out. And when we arrive, we're at like 6 a.m. London time and I'm feeling yeah. fresh and I can go and catch that train and go and catch, like do things. Yeah. So, um, and it, you know, I guess this is where it becomes valuable knowing what the plan is going to be. And I remember how much I valued it when captains would send out an email a day before being like, hey, guys, uh, you know, be CCing all the, all the cockpit crew. And they'd be saying, all right, um, such and such, expect to work first. And vice versa, you guys can expect to rest first. Yeah, so I, dogs I think that's um, no, all good. I I think that's really um, professional, and I I would expect most airlines to do it. Not all captains do it, and it kind of sucks because you don't know. Okay, am I resting, sleeping first? Like, is the FO making the the decision? Um, so I I think that's part of airlines, and maybe airlines need to start like implementing that if they're not doing it. You know, like it should be like a professional standard. Um, there's also with the regards to the sleep management, I guess people track their sleep. I was never like, I never did that, but um, I definitely a huge fan of sleeping. So after a long haul flight, I nap, I'll go and get two hours nap because um, you can't get your sleep credits back after 24 hour period. Um, so yeah, damages. So uh, speaking of tracking sleep, you know, there's so many different trackers now you've got Fitbits, app watches i got a whoop on here garments they all at least say that they track sleep some are better than others i think um and you know i've i've tried pretty much all of them actually and what i've realized is that they're excellent training tools because what happens is after you build up a few months of data and you can correlate uh you know fatigue with how you're actually feeling over time, you learn types of behaviors correlate with being fatigued. But once you've, once you've learned that, so once you've been using them for a long time, 
you know, you, you've, you've gained the information. Like I know how, like how I'm going to screw myself for sleep and fatigue. Right. So, you know, rarely, like I'm wearing it gone for months where I haven't used it because I, I know what the outcome is going to be after a 16 hour flight. I know that if I don't get rest immediately after it's going to build up and you'll be redlining fatigue sort of thing. Yeah. And um, yeah. just with regards to sleep like management, have you ever, and do you feel the immediate effects of not sleeping? So your performance towards say exercise or even mm. um, ability for like theoretical work and on the yeah. flight deck. Yeah. So certainly you know, some people will swear by exercising as soon as they land. And I think, I think that's more so a thing where they know that if they don't do it now, it won't happen at all. Um, but I don't think it's optimal for health. I have a rule where um, after a long haul flight, I will always go to bed for minimum six hours. And uh, a strategy that I use to make sure I'm getting that six hours because we're crossing so many time zones, you know, like I, I often wake up and I have no idea what time it is, what day it is. I don't even, sometimes I don't even know where I am. Like I literally have to think for a moment, what, what city, what country am I in? And yeah. one tip that I use for um, making sure that I get that six hours of sleep is I'll set a stopwatch on my iPhone and I'll leave it next to my bed. And whenever I wake up, I'll reach over, check the clock. And if it's less than six hours, I force myself to go back to bed. So, wow. Yeah. I think you're a uh, screen. Um, yeah. Sorry. If my screen's uh, frozen, that's all good. Let's move on. I don't know okay. what's happening. But, um, okay. Yeah. I think the other thing to note with sleep is just, with the time zones and the the light as well you know like if we're in america it's always like daylight yeah. and you know we're sleeping and then versa and it's like people think long haul is really glamorous but i think generally your flight's always <laughs> departing night and arriving in the morning and yeah. it's not great you know especially if you've got that 24 hour layover or min rest like a 12 yeah. hour turn or something and it's just you're wrecked after it. And, you know, I used to go play hockey games straight after like a long yeah, a layover yeah. or a long haul. And just physically, you can't perform. So, um, no, you're just, you're hanging on by threads, aren't you? Yeah. And the, there's a lot said to the whole uh, health aspect of flying in general, right? We we're talking before. So, sleep and then exercise and eating, it's all part of yeah. like this greater picture that when you're on a layover, you can't cook a home cooked meal. You have to eat crap. generally. You're sleeping like crap. You're not exercising. So, you know, if you do too many of those, where is that breaking point where you're just becoming that fat FO? You get the FO belly. (laughs) Oh, fat captain as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah, So let's, let's hone in on diet a little bit. And, you know, whilst it's, I think equally as challenging as managing healthy sleep. Um, you know, I think that one of the, there's, there's a lot of challenges to do a diet, particularly with, you know, the type of roster I do where I'm away for half a month and you're in foreign countries. You don't know if there's, you know, you might be, um, well, in fact, most of the time your body's on the incorrect time zone, your body clock. So you're jet lagged you're awake wanting dinner or breakfast at like three, four in the morning. Um, And one of the, one of the challenges is the finances of it, how expensive it becomes ordering 20 to $30 uh, Uber Eats meals for, and this isn't nice food. This is like, um, you know, like Taco Bell or Denny's or something where, you know, once you paid for tip, tip and tax and everything for the, the literally the worst food, but, the only food because there's only two or three places available in a five mile radius of you. Yeah. You end up What's just the, um, eating. Sorry. The, um, in, in Gatwick, like, you know, I'd wake up at two, 3 AM in the morning over there and there's only the coffee shop, like the 24 seven coffee shop in the terminal. And you're each literally eating yeah. like a croissant and a flat white. <laughs> and, like, you know, the other people. Living the, the dream. Terminal, yeah, they're all like the the people who've missed their flights and sleeping on chairs and like sleeping yeah, in a Starbucks. Yeah. And you're just like, what the so hell am grim. I doing? 
Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, this is why you don't want airport hotels. So but um yeah. You know, even the math on that, let's let's call it an average of twenty-five dollars a meal. And let's say you intermittent fast. So for twelve hours of the day, you're not eating anything. And then let's say you have two large meals to cover yourself for the rest of the layover. That's fifty bucks a day, right? Yeah. That's now seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. Okay. Yeah. And nine grand a year that you're spending this is US dollars alone. Nine thousand yeah. US dollars a year spending on really trash food. Um, yeah. but the only thing that's available, right? And yeah. I guess the way I try and manage this is I just accept it as one of the unfortunate realities of international long-haul flying. And yeah. when I'm home, I don't touch any of that shit. I yeah. try and cook as much like whole foods as possible. Um, you know, I eat at home as much as I can. Um, and that's really the best you can do. Yeah. All right, so that's, I guess, like a reasonable summary of the challenges of diet, sleep, exercise we haven't really hit yet. But I think um, I wouldn't say it's impossible to maintain, you know, a reasonable lifestyle of exercise. And, you know, the reason you can say that is because there's plenty of ultra fit pilots that you and I both know. Um, yeah. And in fact, I'd almost argue that within the industry, it's almost like a... a it's, it's common to have extremes. You've either got people who are terribly unfit or you've got marathon runners who are absolutely obsessive with training. Do you not yeah. find that? Yeah, 100%. You always got like the uh, extremes and there are so many, or well, there are a lot of pilots out there who like cycle hundreds of kilometers and then run and do marathons. Yeah. And then you get the guys who you're like, man, you cannot fit out that window if we have to get out of here. Like, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> Like you just we're, we're, put, we're, putting, we're, putting, we're putting you in the diaper and throwing you off the top deck. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like I wonder how they've been passed their medicals and like that is I guess an issue with yeah. being a pilot as well as you're you know achieving your medical and you might have to go yeah. to fat, fat camp, like you know, if you let yourself lapse or I know yeah. um CASA monitor Euro like BMI and if it's sure. uh increases too rapidly in like a year or two. Yeah they will uh, put you on, like give you... And it's quite call. interesting because I know people who are bodybuilders who have been instructed by their dames that they must lose weight because they're exceeding the obese scale of a BMI. Well, that's right? crazy. And this is it's a funny thing because it's just like the aviation medical is so generic and so old and archaic that they've used kind of like this really general thumb BMI, which is weight over height. And of course, that doesn't work for people who've got huge amounts of muscle mass who are incredibly fit, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's it's quite funny when you hear guys just being told to basically lose weight when you're jacked. Yeah, and there are guys who are jacked, and you know, yeah. love that aspect of it. I, I remember there was a guy at flight school who was oh, well, not really overweight, just a bigger guy, and casa made him like do a physical like assessment to see if he could get in and out of the aircraft as well as the weight oh, and balance wow. for the aircraft just to make sure <laughs> wow. it could take off and that that is an issue with some of those lighter aircraft you know like the 152 you can't get two big guys in there it's like oh, two man. instructors of about 70 oh, kilos no with full tanks. so yeah um, you're sacrificing bags in the back for some of that gut yeah yeah literally and then you you start to wonder like does my weight or size put me at a disadvantage? Like, you know, when you're trying to get your first job, um, uh -huh. like oh, I should be hired because I only weigh 60 kilos, like, you know. Yeah. But, um, oh, well, I guess so. in a world of inclusivity, it shouldn't really matter, right? Yeah, I, it shouldn't matter. But I, I would say sometimes people like, you know, you get that judgment and that discrimination. But yeah, yeah, either way, I think that's a good, like, maybe we can lead on to the flight training aspects now with the vet fee after having touched on the health consequences of flying. Um, yep. So pretty much on this, this part of the podcast, I thought just talk a bit about the financing options available to flight training, because we both know flight training is not cheap. And um, mm -hmm. I was just doing a bit of research and since I started flight training, like when I started a Cessna 152 was about 170. It's now like 250. Wet or dry? That was wet. Yeah. Wow. 
Okay. That's not bad. Yeah, regional, like small, crappy 152s, I guess. Um, yep. Now you're looking at a 172. Let me just have a look here. I think it was 370. So, um, who's that with? Can you no, drop sorry. some names? Nah, or well, I don't know if I should be dropping names, <laughs> but you know, if you're at a flying school, like send. Are send they based in WA? Uh, they are based in WA, but <laughs> they are they are cheaper than most of the operators out there. Like for instance, a twin engine I, IFR capable aircraft now is seven hundred fifty dollars in WA. That's yep. a, um, that's Easy, your, yeah. Yeah, uh, dual rate for a 172 is $430, solo is $380, and a 182. um, So that was a 172, 182 is $550, Jill. Wow. $500. So you can imagine for a 210, what did I pay? I I hired a 210 last year. And I wonder. I wonder how much of that money is going to the instructor. <laughs> Very little. Oh, no. Yeah. So like instructors, when I was instructing, I was on like $18 an hour. And then I think 23 wow. when I became grade two. So yeah. not much is going. Um, now, there's been, the- there's been wage inflation within the industry. Has the like instructor and like education component of the industry seen any of that wage rise? Do you know? It will because the EBA got changed, what, last month, didn't it? Uh, everyone got for a instructors? 5% pay rise. Yeah. For inst- for oh, okay. everyone on the min wage EBA for Australia, like, you know, one, uh, seven, three pilots. pilots, we all got a uh, 5% increase. And that was for right. everyone, I'm pretty sure. I was talking oh, to okay. an old student who flies a one, I know, what is it, a 208, a caravan yeah. IFR, and he's on 80K and lives in Darwin, obviously. And wow. um, so, I guess when you take, yeah. It's not bad, plus some allowances. Yeah. Um, he gets the IFR yeah. allowance. Um, yeah. But, you know, he's working hard for that money. And I'm sure. when you take rent, which is pretty expensive in some of these rural places uh, or cities yeah. like Darwin, you, you're not left with much. And then you're trying to obviously Maybe. your yeah, it's a, uh, flying okay. training costs are like 130K to 150, yeah. you know. Um, Easily. You I would have thought, I mean, yeah. I think I paid... 127 yeah and that was in 2013 yeah um so paying 130 now after 10 years of inflation isn't that bad but it's not i'm sure you're i'm sure you'll you'll lead on to some of this um i mean some of the schools are selling cadet ships for over 150 now yeah well i you know i i actually didn't get too much into the whole cadet ship thing but obviously there are cadet yeah. ships out there with um yeah. rex Qantas, jetstar um is virgin doing uh, one anymore no they they don't have one at the moment they still have it on the website i was checking the other day just to actually see the requirements yeah. to get in on the 73 yeah. but yeah. um that needs to be updated uh the AF, sorry, the FTA one is obviously a big like vet fee provider in Australia with two campuses now in the corner steel um, in Toowoomba. So mm-hmm. that I can I can quote that price for that, and that was for a CPL eighty five k for next year's course intake for just a CPL for up yeah up to the CPL. So that's everything for the CPL. Yeah. Um, so okay. what's that one hundred fifty hours plus like you've got your sim time, your exams, and they cover all your initial costs. But um, for for instance, that 85K includes 7K of ground school. Like seven grand of ground school is a lot of money. Like to me, I, oh, I yeah. think I did self-study, right? Well, I went to uni, but I self-studied everything. And I think you can do that for about two grand with all the books and the fee exam, like the oh. exams costs. But yeah, I mean, each the, exam doesn't cost like $150 just to enroll, sit up, sit yeah, paper, sit up $150 to sit the CPL exam and the seven to do, plus Bob Tate yeah. charges probably $120 for the basic human <laughs> factors, met book, plus I think some of the oh, bigger yeah. ones are like $150. Um, yeah, and you don't get ground score, obviously, with that cost either, but to, to top that, so you've spent eighty-five grand for your vet fee, and then you got to spend another thirty-two grand for your IFR, so in the multi-engine. Right. So, yeah, interesting. So I think um, if I was to summarize cadetship versus going through like a, well, they they call them um, 
like what do they call like packaged education? Yeah, the uh, integrated, integrated courses. Training. Yeah, yeah. So you will save money going through an integrated flight school as opposed to the cadetship, but what you are buying with a cadetship is first of all the brand, right? You want to be associated with that brand. And secondly, you're buying the possibility of getting a job. Yeah. And, you know, if the difference between those two is twenty or $30,000, I guess people are justifying going with the cadetship because, oh, well, let's say that's like half of my first year's salary. I call that worth it because you remove the risk of not having a job as you come out of training. Yeah. But... I would say a lot of people that I know have gone through cadetships haven't got jobs straight away. You know, like what percentage of people are getting <laughs> jobs? And that's something that... Oh, well, it's not guaranteed at all. Out. Yeah. And the Qantas ones aren't guaranteed, right? So there yeah. are a lot of people and we know people who did the Q-Link ones that, you know, oh, one yeah. or two out of six or eight in each course got the job. But yeah. is it? are you paying for the opportunity to top the class and maybe have like you know, the opportunity to go onto a dash or a, a 320 or, you know, and yeah. if you said to me, okay, and this is, this is exactly in my case, I guess, because I didn't have the money to go and do it, but I had vet fee. Um, I think you're better off doing vet fee through a cadetship and applying yourself and having that chance. However, if I had the cash, I would probably just do it privately because you will save, uh, well, if you, I did some numbers running on a 172 from zero to hero CPL, mm. uh, including a 182 for your CPL training of like 20 hours and some uh, mm -hmm. solo time. And it was about 70 grand to do it privately. So that that's a huge, yeah. that, that included like all theory um, running the numbers. Well, that's, that's a huge difference, but it can be also incredibly intimidating for a person who doesn't know anything about the industry. They know they want to be a yeah. pilot and... What do they do? They, they've got this pile of cash, right? Let's just say they, they happen to have the cash. Do yep. they go to this kind of sort of good reputation, but not the flying school where, you know, like they might get halfway through it, lose an instructor or something like that? Or do they yep. go with this established brand where you're literally a brand, but you yep. are assuming that that premium is purchasing you more security? and like yeah. a known outcome yeah but so that's just a decision people need to make right yeah yeah and so let's talk the q-link cadetship right because i i don't know many q-link pilots but their pay as a first officer isn't great either right you're like what 65 65k pretty sure okay sure so yeah. plus your allowances so say 75k if you were to go into instructing, you're probably going to be on 55K now as like a grade two. Um, the things to note is if you're in a cadetship, you're not getting out. Like you're, you're planning to stay there, right? Especially in the Q-Link group, they're not going to let you go into Qantas. Um, sure. if, if it was me and I had the cash now, I might be inclined to actually go go get some 210 time somewhere in a flying school if they got one or 206. They have 206s as a couple of flying schools. And if you yeah. get lucky or work hard up north, you'll probably be an airline in an airline in like a year and a half at the moment if you got your fifteen hundred hours. Yeah, that's that's one of the funny things about joining a cadetship uh, of one of the like more established major airlines is you if you do get a job um, after training, you're usually entering through a regional of the company. Yeah. And then assuming you don't assuming you want to climb to the top of a major or whatever you are limited in your progression throughout that company based on their willingness to release you from each different yeah. uh, tier or each different subsidiary of that company. Whereas if you take a little bit more risk and you go bush or you do some other, you know, like lesser known regional company that doesn't have ties to major airlines, accumulate your hours that way where you can skip the whole being released by subsidiaries um, problem because yeah. you never joined them in the first place. You're an outsider. Yeah. You know, we know that um, when it comes to majors recruiting, they almost split it into two sections where they've got internal and external. 
and internals, they have a quota about how many they release to each different uh, tier at a time. Um, and usually that's a far lower number than externals. The reason yeah. for that is because it's far more costly to promote or hire an internal than external because it's a game of whack-a-mole. When you hire yeah. someone from a regional and you, you go through all of the costs associated with hiring that person, interviewing them, well, when you uh, hire them into the major, not only do you have to train them on a new type rating, you've now created a vacancy in that regional that you have to fill. You have to yeah. interview a new person. You have to train the new person. And a lot of those people at the bottom, they've got very low hours and they require a lot of training sectors. So you can yeah. imagine the incentive for a company to hire an outsider versus going internal. Yeah. And I, th I think that's like, you, you can even pinpoint that to my experience, right? I went and got type rated and there is no chance, uh, for instance, Rex is going to release our pilots for their 7-3 fleet. Like, I think they will say that. <laughs> well, well no. they, they, you know, I'm not going to talk about Rex specifically, but a lot yeah. of the time companies will at least create the impression that they will. Because if you just tell all of your your regional pilots you are never going to come onto the jet in the next five years, people will just leave. Yeah. <laughs> They'll just leave immediately. They have to at least yeah. think that there's a chance that in the near future they might be one of the lucky few who get promoted to the jet fleet. So, yeah. you know, there's all these all these games that uh companies can play, but it's a game it's 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 very much a balancing act. You can't um you can't annoy the pilot group too much. You have to create yeah. some sort of movement uh, yeah. to keep people engaged. Yeah. And companies do that. We, we've seen it, right? Like we were SOs and they hired yeah. direct entry FOs and yeah, uh, I've seen that at Singapore yeah. Flying College and WA. Uh, you know, you'll get a job at Scoot mm -hmm. if you stay around and instruct yeah. for five years. And then people realize, yeah. man, I should have lo like left three years ago. You know, same thing at yeah. Cathay. I was there for what, six what, and a half as what, an SO. What, Maybe I should have left. Yeah, but this is a uh, hindsight benefit, right? Um, yeah. What you'll find is generally they'll never bring promotions to a complete standstill, to zero. They'll bring it down to an absolute trickle, you know, maybe like yeah. two or four people a month. So that there's yeah. at least some movement so that people can't just say, hey, what the fuck? Like, why are all these people skipping the queue of seniority? Yeah. There. they just need one yeah. they always just sink one person in there with an external and say yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're doing it like you hang around we'll look yeah, after you happening. you know yeah, they can't release those people me. yeah they, they can't get like no. let captains go from a left seat there's just not enough experience at the moment but i think with yeah. the whole thing of like going back to the cadet ship like i think it is a great thing you know those virgin cadets they uh they're all back now flying a lot of them went and got flying yep. experience during COVID. Um, just, I think generally the uh, stigma is as well, if you've come out of a sausage factory, you know, it, it's harder to get that job up north. So if you've gone and done the cadetship and then everything yes. gets pear-shaped uh, compared to someone who's maybe done it privately, there's just that stigma of like, oh, well, you know, like sausage factory, DA-42, DA-40, yeah, yeah, yeah. like not real GA planes. Well, there's an there's an impression that um, you might have been spoon-fed or babied in an airline environment where a lot of things are done for you. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you're entering a GA environment, first job, you are expected to do virtually everything except for collect the money from the customer. And even sometimes yeah. you have to do that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's... I remember um, yeah. when I went went and hired that 210 off um, the gentleman who hires his 210 out to people. Um, he was saying, you know, some people coming through these flight schools had never even refueled their aircraft because generally at most like, wow. you know, class D, you, you call the refueling truck up and they fill yeah. it up for you. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I obviously it's was funny, instructed you know. and working where we had to refuel every plane and it's like, damn, where, you know, where do I earth the thing or like, how do I operate yeah, yeah, a Bowser? Yeah. Because you're going to be up north in remote areas where no one's telling you no refuels there. Like you got to get up on the wing and like you know fill it oh, up. Oh god! Uh, I mean, like yeah. the idea that some people are in this industry and don't know how to do that stuff is quite ridiculous to me. Yeah. But you know, I but think um, I was having I was, I was having to think about you know this like 
cadetship versus uh you know like integrated flying school comparison earlier and I guess the pro that people would would argue for the established uh, cadetship is you're kind of being taught from day one and, and you get reminded about this a lot, oh, you know, you need to be procedural because this is how we do it on the 320 or you need yeah. to be procedural because, oh, well, well, you know, in a year's time, you're going to be on the line. It's going to be expected. So yeah. I guess like some people would argue that procedurally people might have better training or at least expectations. Um, yeah. Whereas a lot of flying schools, you can get away with more, I suppose, like practical education. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, for instance, like I know one of the schools down in Wollongong, you know, my, my mom was doing her PPL and she was doing her PPL like, I don't know, a few years into me being commercial and like flying around on like metros or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I tell her that we had flows before doing a checklist, she was like, oh, shit, really? Like, the yeah. idea that you didn't just operate a checklist as, like, a read and do was a foreign concept. And that's just yeah. how they taught it at that flying school because they just have, I guess, like, normal people off the street who just want to get a PPL and they're not ever going to be expected to do SOPs in a multi-career environment. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean... um, each school is going to be different. Each school is going to have different expectations. Um, I sure hope that if you were entering the industry, whether you did go through a cadetship or a uh, integrated flying school, if they had the knowledge that you intended to make this career, I'd sure hope that they'd be holding you accountable and like expecting you to fly procedurally and with SOPs. Yeah. And I think a lot of flying schools have got to, you know, down pack the checklists and yeah. I, maybe they should. Some have they should. Flyers. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say most would. I I think one of the things to say, just coming from like the instructing background, is you can't teach everything. Whereas maybe <laughs> in an integrated college like a cadetship or um, FTA, because we can talk about FTA, it's a bit like big provider in Australia. Yeah. I do believe the um, outcome or the training is really good. You know, the instructors are held to a good standard. They're taught in house, as well as yeah. there's just briefings for everything. So they're, they're resources, whereas you go to a flying, a smaller flying school, they might not even do PowerPoints, you know. And, I mean, um, FTA is like a, that is a well-oiled machine. That is a serious yeah. institution that's had contracts with Emirates, Qantas, Cathay, Qatar. And yeah. uh, a lot of the instructors there become instructors there with the expectation that that's going to lead to an interview with one of the contract uh, contractees, like one of the major airlines. And that is an incentive for them to fly very well and have a good uh, referral for when they do get an interview at a major airline. So yeah. I guess FTA is like a good example of, uh, yeah, but, but it almost is a cadetship, really. Like in yeah. a lot of ways, I see it as a cadetship. And yeah. remember when we were there, I think Cathay was the only contract they had and then they had a small arm of like private uh, trainees, yes. like maybe yeah. 10 or something like that. But yeah. I'm I'm positive that those those people who were doing it privately on their own uh, were being trained ident trained identically to how the Cathay um, cadets or like new hires were being trained. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, and I think that's a good thing though. And um, you know that yeah. is part of you know those pilots going out and say, well, I was trained to this standard. You know, maybe not the the sausage factory standard either, but. Yeah. Um, when is like when it when are you getting baby too much maybe as well and I think that comes down to uh, there's there's a lot of training that goes on after your flight training like you know I remember my testing officer said oh you got your CPL congratulations now you're going to really learn and that's when you start oh you know, dude like I think that's like thunderstorms that's a, and that's probably like the know. biggest uh, fallacy is like this idea that you since now you know shit. Yeah, like that's that's a that's an incredibly dangerous idea to have because like I still, I mean, I'm I'm sure you'll say the same thing. Like I still learn stuff every flight, every like, flight, uh, yeah. you, every flight. And I think the day that you stop having that perspective is probably the day you kill yourself. I imagine. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Because you just get you get complacent, you get comfortable, you stop studying, and then you get put in unusual environments or. Uh, yeah 
attitudes. I, I guess that's maybe in, in the GA world where it is a lot of it is self-training, you know, you're like chief pilots probably not going to train you once you're, you're checked to line on a two, yeah, yeah. Or like two or six, they're not going to be like, yeah. hey, have you ever thought about thunderstorm uh, avoidance or, you know, have you ever like considered what you do if like your passengers and you were stuck in the middle of nowhere and, you know, you've probably still got an Optus phone or something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of like real life experience and experience that we've probably also picked up on just flying with so many different people. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the best thing about really flying is meeting new people and learning from them as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's so many ways to like skin a cat as well. So yeah. yeah. So awesome. Very good. I think that's a, a lot of valuable information about financing, about the differences of, uh cadetships versus private integrated flying schools um let's uh quickly touch up on some real world news uh before we wrap up uh see since we last spoke united has signed a new five-year contract yeah with their pilots um upwards of in in the best case scenario 40 percent pay rise for some pilots um, yep. And that's going to be spread over four years where they're going to be getting progressive pay increases. Um, pretty good news for pilots all around. Uh, and a big win for Alpa, which is like the major uh, airline union in the US. And I guess uh, one of the, the main objectives of the United Pilots was to, in their opinion, get fair payment, but also to match one of their competitors, Delta. And that's going to leave American Airlines last. And I think their CEO has already publicly stated in the last year that they're going to match whatever Delta does. So positive news. It's one of those, you know, rising tides lifts all boats. Um, Hopefully we see some of that outside of the US, in Australia. I think, you know, you just spoke about how uh, there's been some pay increases across the board nationally in Australia. Um, yeah. Virgin's coming up to a new CBA. Uh, Rex, are they doing a new CBA? Uh, they just Rex signed one. Got theirs through, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was probably what a ten percent pay rise <laughs> from one twenty one to one twenty nine. Okay, so you know, moving in the right direction, but I'd still say it's a conservative movement considering the amount of inflation that's um, hit the entire world over five years. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, some other information on that United deal, it's a $10 billion increase in cost for the for the airline over the next five years. So a massive increase in costs. But um, one of the ways I think that they're going to offset that increase in cost is that they plan to increase their number of seats across the entire airline by 30% in that same five-year period. Oh, actually, yeah. before 2026. So if yeah. you think about that, Whilst they are increasing their unit cost per pilot, if each pilot is flying 30% more passengers, at least part of that increase in wage will be offset by the increase in number of passengers that are going to be on each flight. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, they had some ludicrous number of 787 orders that they placed uh, last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll try and throw up an article on the screen if I can find one, but um, yeah massive expansion you're seeing in the u.s and i guess uh the only uh reservation i'd have about that is don't expand too aggressively too fast because we know how that ends it's the the standard boom bust cycle of aviation and the last thing we want to see is this over expansion into a recession and then you see hundreds if not thousands of pilots laid off because airlines overestimated the amount of demand that they were going to need in the future. Yeah. So I'm trying, I can't remember where I saw the United thing, but I've got an article up, which is just basically saying it's $110 first year FO um, and then goes to like 160 plus there's that 5%, I think for a 7.3. It depends on your time and length in the company, but yeah, 100%. It's such an exciting time because we haven't seen this since we've been flying. And um, I just know everyone always says like the US is like, it goes big and it goes hard and then it also falls really fast. (laughs) And um, just hopefully we're going to see at that that time. Yeah, yeah. But um, 
Yeah. I don't think Australia's <clears throat> seen pay rises for a long time in Australian aviation you, either. So, do you think that this uh, vacuum that's happening in America, where they're sucking up pilots from Australia on the E three program? Do you think that any of the companies in Australia are even noticing that? Or do you think there's sufficient students in the pipeline? You know, we've got these cadetship programs where there's basically a fixed known quantity of pilots that are going to be produced every year, guaranteed to fill seats if they're needed. Do you think that uh, Aussie pilots leaving is having an impact yet? 100%. So the recruit I was talking to last week obviously said now there are more individuals generally of like the like single young who they would normally be considering to hire are not there. Mm -hmm. Um, However, they're also... So who is showing up to the interview? That's that's what I want to know. Yeah, well, you still got the expats who are coming back from Emirates, Cathay and overseas and maybe even some E3s after, you know, because there are a lot of people who have never lived overseas and it's not for everyone. So you still have that experience coming back. Um, You've also got like low-time pilots that, uh, for instance, I was talking to a friend recently who um, when he was hiring or like got into a jet gig here in Australia, there were Dash 8 captains, Cathay FOs, you know, like very experienced pilots. And now I, well, I can tell you that's, that's not there. You know, it's 1500 yeah. hours, GA, turbine, twin piston, and they're getting into jets, um, which is a crazy yeah. time for all of us, which is awesome. Um, but you, yeah, man, I, I don't know if they said E3 and you could go and work at a Delta or United, I would, yeah, that, that'd be a tough choice i think if they started taking aussies oh, God. i think a lot more would go um absolutely you know, man i think uh you know and I, I just generally speaking don't think that many australians know what's available over there that's one of the purposes of this podcast is to try yeah. and get transparent information out there where people know what's available in the market in australia and america um yeah. and yeah sure if the e3 program opened up to a few more carriers particularly the majors I think that would yep. wreak absolute havoc in the Australian market because right now, you know, you're you're looking at, I guess, like in in terms of pay, you're you're only able to apply for B tier, um, yep. like pay scale yep. companies in the US. If that got opened up to A tier, like, unless you're absolutely like your heart is set on living in Australia, like you'd be a madman to stay. Yeah, I, I know, I think, was it American? 7-3 out of like New York or a lot of the carriers. If you put yourself in New York or the, the expensive places, San Fran, you'll be a captain in one yeah. year on the 7-3. Like, you know. Oh, well, Delta, I saw this in a news article. Delta, I think 757 commands are at three and a half months. Wow. You know. It takes three months to join a company. Yeah. By the time you finish does. ground school and you have your type rating, you're going to be at yeah. three and a half months. And they're yeah. actually getting angry at the pilots for saying, no, I'm not ready. The guys yeah. are freaking out because, I mean, I've been on 7-4 for a year now. There's no way that I would go on the left seat. But yeah. I think you need minimum probably three years of yeah. just getting comfortable in the machine, seeing enough maintenance defects, dealing with it, dealing with dispatch before yeah. you absorb liability or yeah. responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Hey, man, it, it's a different beast that America, right? Like, like you said, not yeah. many people have seen it. And I think, you know, if I, I general, my general advice to anyone who is maybe like looking at that, I'd be like, if you got 1500 hours, just go for it. Get on a CR, uh, oh, CRJ or EJ. I mean, if, just every person who's, every person who's under the age of 30 who isn't flying a jet in Australia, I'm telling them to go to America. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, that's like an order. Like, get the hell over there. Yeah. Because, yeah, um, you know, there's the other thing is that there's just so much experience coming back repatriating from overseas right now that, yeah. I mean, if, if your heart is set on joining one of the Australian airlines, of course, apply. But yeah. there's just, I mean, you've done interviews in Australia recently. Um, yeah. And like, tell me, like, what, what's the experience you're seeing? There's quite a variety, uh, I imagine. Yeah, you know, FOs, metros, uh, turbine time, but, you know, 1,500 hours. Any jet people? Any any repatriating expats? Just me. (laughs) 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 Just me. Uh, I'm like the odd ball who's actually type-rated and, you know, got a little bit of jet time. 
just a tiny bit. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a weird one. I have seen people with a lot of experience in ground courses of recent, and um, they would have not been probably candidates who would have got jobs uh, a couple of years ago because, you know, you'd be like, why are you here? You know, you're like 60, yeah. 65 retirement. Yeah. But I think the airlines now are so desperate that they're just taking those people. Um just yeah. for a couple of years, even if they have to, and then they have to take GA Warriors now, you know. So, yeah, man, it's just. I mean, uh, I remember crazy. so the 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 average age in my course when I joined Atlas was forty eight. Yeah, because they 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 put it on the they put it on the screen, which is they probably wouldn't do that in Australia because it'd be like discrimination, discrimination or it'd be break, yeah. break, breaking breaking some sort of rule. Yeah. But literally, like, it was one of the first things they threw up on the PowerPoint once everyone was sitting down in the classroom, all, like, 46 of us. Yeah. And they're like, hey, uh, everybody, this is the age of every single person in this room. This is the average. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit. I guess yeah. uh, there's a lot of people who are making significant career changes, career moves, and, you know, a lot of people in that classroom were Cathay captains and FOs, um, yeah. which, you know, like, I don't think there's probably ever been such a significant exodus or shift in um, in careers, certainly that yeah. I've ever seen, but at Cathay. Oh, man, but now's the time, right, to get back and get the job you want, yeah. I would say, and it's a great Although opportunity. Some of those guys are going back. Some of those guys are going back to Cathay as direct entry captains. Yeah. yeah They've done yeah. it for a year, and, and they're like, you know what, as much as I was, uh, wasn't impressed with my employer previously, um, you know what? I actually don't dislike them that much, and yeah, yeah. there's a pay. Uh, there, there was a pay cut, but yeah, I can probably still survive on it. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, there's, there's people, people going back. This, um, this but, is um, the man, this I is think... the velocity we were talking about. Like, there's just so yeah. much displacement. Movement. There's so much movement happening. Yeah, you just got to wait for it to settle, right? And then you know, see what what's happening with the industry and. I don't know. I think airlines are paying a fortune right now to get training and they don't have training capacity. And then, you know, they're picking up people yeah. with little experience. So that's extra training required, but um, it is what yep. it is. Um, but mate, I think we'll uh, sum it up and just say uh, there was a lot that we've just talked about for part A and B, but um, yeah, it was good. And uh, enjoy the time out in the Valley, wherever you are now in, in the bush. <laughs> Undisclosed location. <laughs> yeah and there's some you know catching up on your sleep credits and your health and the fresh air and... oh mate yeah i'm on uh day four of my days off and i think i've finally got back into the green thanks boy ben. yeah yeah i i haven't worked for so long i wouldn't know what it feels like <laughs> you know, I, I yeah, just do courses. yeah i just salt salt, you know, salt in the wound that's it either way um <laughs> until next time we will have a chat oh, and man. um We'll figure out what we're going to be talking about next time. So we'll catch you then. Thanks everyone for listening. See you later.